what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of The Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents, as well as caring for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP Community, Adult Children of Aging Parents. In this podcast, we are talking about honest aging, what caregivers need to know about their loved one's second half of life. Dr. Roseanne Leipzig, MD and PhD, is the Gerald and May Ellen Ritter Professor and Vice Chair Emeritus of the Brookdale Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York. She is an internationally recognized leader in geriatrics and evidence-based medicine and has received numerous awards for her work. Her career of over 40 years has focused on improving the quality and safety of care for older adults as a board-certified geriatrician and palliative medicine specialist. Among her many other accomplishments and activities, Dr. Leipzig is is the author of Honest Aging, an insider's guide to the second half of life. She also is the editor of Chief editor-in-chief of the monthly newsletter Focus on Healthy Aging and co-editor of the fourth edition of Geriatric Medicine. Dr. Leipzig, we are delighted to have you with us today. You are one busy lady. Holy mackerel. (laughs) Well, thank you. But, you know, I'm never too busy to talk about a topic that's this important. How kind. How kind. There truly, as we both know, are certainly joys in caring for our aging parents and other loved ones, but there also can be challenges. (laughs) There can be a host of emotions that accompany the journey, theirs as well as ours, and there can be medical issues and hard decisions related to independence and dignity and control. Often there there is anticipatory grief knowing that there will be a time that they, that life on earth ends. And there also can be difficulty in the relationship with the care recipient and certainly struggles with other family members related to the care of a loved one. So that's a whole lot. And we have so much that we could talk about, but let's unpack it a little bit. How is aging a multi-generational issue? Well, you know, we can't pretend that what affects one member of a family won't affect the others. It's true for both the positive and the negative interaction, and it goes across all ages. You know, we all have finite abilities and resources for caregiving. You're concerned about your children as well as your parents and your spouse. And if you have children, they're concerned about you 
And as Kurt Vonnegut would say, so it goes. You know, our emotions, our sense of well-being, our moods, finances, what we're able to do, these are all affected by those we love and can lead to good days, bad days, and stress, as well as to memorable times together. You know, my grandmother was an incredible my reason for becoming a geriatrician. She lived with us when I was younger, and I witnessed the complexities and joys of a multi-generational household. So I know a bit about the journey that your listeners may be on. That's really interesting because I lived with my grandmother also in a multi-generational home. So, yeah. 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 So, so there are complexities. There are multi- multiple levels of all of this. What strategies can families as well as the older adult use to shift toward accepting the adjustments of aging and possible realities while also embracing the joys of the added years? And if I cut you off from the first question, please go back to that. I'm, I apologize if I did. You're absolutely fine. Okay. We can always get back to my grandmother. <laughs> um, I think being realistic is the most important thing. It's part of why I entitled the book Honest Aging. You know, it's a thing that we as individuals in a society are loath to do. Um, aging comes with changes in abilities. Some changes are normal. Some are due to diseases. But you're not always going to be able to do everything you're able to do right now. And we're often in denial of this. So I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You know, one's ability to be a safe driver, to live in the same place that's been your home for years and years, and to take even to take care of yourself without the help of others. All of these are common dilemmas for families, and they can all be sensitive or contentious issues. So I have four strategies, probably more than that, but I'll give you four for dealing with this. The first is don't wait for an emergency to happen before you start talking about these issues. If people live long enough, they're likely to need to deal with these things. Beginning a conversation opens the door to further discussion. Being in a no-pressure environment when you do that gives you the time to understand what everyone's concerns are. Identifying differences in opinions early allows time to work things out before an emergency requires an immediate decision to be made, and that's often made by somebody other than the person themselves. The second strategy, I would say, is be honest about your feelings and thoughts and allow other people to do the same. You know, these are things that people have really strong opinions about what should be done in these situations. Letting everybody speak lets everyone feel heard, even if at the end, They don't all agree with the decision. I would try, and I try with my patients all the time, to reframe the concept of independence. I think we live in a country where independence is everything. We're all teenagers. You know, mom, let me do it myself. Uh, And with aging, we may need the assistance of another person or some devices to do these things. And we need to be open, adaptable, and accepting of human or technical assistance because that will often let us do what really matters to us. And if you're able to have an enjoyable, engaged, and meaningful life, that's the prize. It doesn't matter if you need to wear a hearing aid in order to do that. So 
it may require, for example, finding an alternative to driving yourself when you really want to go somewhere or having someone be with you so you can do what really matters to you. And lastly, take advantage of the resources that can help support you. These include community organizations and professionals who can help provide context and advice. You know, making decisions is a process and it often involves some homework, you know, such as visiting assisted living centers, sitting down with a social worker to discuss local services that might be helpful or even having driving skills reevaluated. But you need to remember the line the disability advocates use, nothing about me without me. Make sure your loved one is involved in these endeavors and doesn't feel like you're kind of sneaking off doing it without them. Absolutely. Those are really good tips. I mean, I think the the biggest thing about my grandmother (laughs) was that she was not in perfect health when she came to live with us. Um, And she lived with us for seven years and then she felt better and she was 75 and she moved out. She got her own place. (laughs) She lived with her friends in an apartment complex um, near where she went, near her synagogue. Um, And she just kept going until something else happened. And what she was able to do was to live a very vibrant life. And she did that by spending time with her grandchildren and her neighbors and her friends. Um, She would go to a friendship circle every week. She volunteered. Um, She cooked like nobody's business. (laughs) Okay. And if I had asked her what to tell me what it felt like to grow old, she would have laughed at me. And she'd say, you know, you're only as old as you let yourself be. And I have to tell you something, you know, you gave all these things about me at the beginning. I've been in this business a long time dealing with older people, okay? (laughs) Being a doctor for older adults. And my grandmother was right, (laughs) okay? The way that you look at aging, your perceptions, your reactions are gonna determine how good your old age is. Because a lot of it has to do with whether you see the glass is half empty or half full. And, and that is not only for us who are caring for someone who is older, but it also is wonderful to be able to, to encourage our, our older adults, our loved ones, also to look at the, ha- the glass being half, half filled, yes. not of empty. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 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 Your grandmother sounds like a, just a remarkable woman. She was. <laughs> well, how blessed you are to have had you had her in your life yes. and probably how blessed she was to have you in her life. Absolutely. It was definitely a, uh, a partnership. <laughs> <laughs> what a team, what a team you two would have made. <laughs> Oh, golly. Well, let's talk about some other pieces of this. Um, I I have journeyed with my mother and my grandmother also, um, who who both died at the age of 96. So (laughs) we we say that we come from long livers in my family. Um, But but I know weight loss is a real sign. My husband was a hospice chaplain. I I know uh, weight loss is is a real sign of, of 
um, a, a real sign of all kinds of things. But let's talk a little, what are the benchmarks to look for with weight loss? Um, you know, when is it okay? When is it maybe something to really pay attention to? And particularly, you're a palliative care physician also. So what about at the end of life? All right. Well, let me try and um, put that into a couple of different answers. The, the first is to put it into context. As you get older, it's harder to maintain weight. Now, for those of us who have struggled with our weight our whole life, okay, <laughs> the idea that you're going to lose some weight without having to do too much is very exciting. Um, weight tends to increase until you're 60 or 70. And then for most people, it starts to decline. You eat less, and the amount of activity you do decreases. But usually we end up taking eating less, how can I say this, decreasing our intake more than decreasing our activity. So because of that, we lose weight. And when we lose weight, we also lose muscle and fat. So you, as opposed to uh, the Duchess of Windsor, I think it was, who used to say, you can't be too rich or too thin. Not true. You can be too thin, okay? And it's a real problem as you get older. Um, you, if you lose too much, your muscles get very weak. Now, everybody loses some muscle. From the time they're 30, okay, you start losing muscle but you can lose more than you would expect to lose on the basis of age alone. And that's a real problem. That's something we call sarcopenia. Big word just means sarcomuscle, penia too little, okay? But the thing about that is that you can enter it into a cycle of frailty, and that's where things start going downhill. You keep losing muscle, you're more exhausted, you're walking even more slowly than you were. You're less able to do what you were able to do before. So you lose less muscle. You lose more muscle. And you keep going around this. Okay. And what happens is that if you are frail, you don't have reserve. And you're more at risk for bad outcomes, you know, from diseases, medical treatments. And we just can't compensate for the, the stresses of illness and trauma. So why is it harder to maintain weight? with aging, don't really know the answer. Some older adults don't enjoy food as much as they once did. We tend to lose our sense of taste and smell a bit, not just COVID, okay? That can make it food less appetizing. Teeth are really needed and dental concerns can cause a big problem. If you're living alone, you can get very tired of your lack of variety in the food that you get. Um, it's interesting. There's a study where 70-year-olds were given the same restricted amount of food as 20-year-olds, and they felt less hungry after they, um, when they restricted the amount of food, and after they ate, they felt fuller than the 70-year-olds. It seems that the less you eat, the less you want to eat. Okay, um, my mom used to refer to that as stomach shrinking. You know, it's something we kept trying to get. <laughs> So a benchmark to look for. In general, we're concerned with weight loss that's 5% of more or more of your body weight over 6 to 12 months for no apparent reason. Okay. 
Okay, say that say that again, please. Five percent or more of your body weight over six to twelve months for no apparent reason. Now some people look at their body mass index, the BMI, and that when it's less than 18.5, we get worried. And a lot of older adults have higher BMIs than they had when they were younger because they shrunk. And BMI is a ratio of weight to height, okay? But when your BMI is less than 18.5, it's associated with increased risk of death as well as malnutrition, osteoporosis, and fractures from falls and frailty. So, you know, when someone's losing weight and not eating, you need an evaluation for an underlying disorder. Um, but it needs to be in line with the person's goals. You know, what do they want? Um, and what I do a lot with my patients is I stop restricted diets. People have been told to watch their salt, watch their cholesterol, watch their sugar. The heck with it. Go for the bacon, okay, or whatever it is that you like. You like, you know. You need to have protein. That's why I mentioned that. You know, it limits what somebody can eat. Um, it's really important they get enough calories and protein so they can gain weight, build muscle. You know, food is fuel. So we, to get the energy that you need, you know, and in general, when you look across the board, older people don't eat enough protein. And, you know, there are all sorts of products out there now, some of which nobody wants to try but others of which actually taste kind of good that have supplemented protein. I mean, we have something that's chocolate milk with 42 grams of protein in it, okay, to help. Um, so, you know, check with your doctor before you go for a high protein diet because people with kidney problems and liver concerns, that could be a problem. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I would start getting concerned. End of life is a different place, okay? You know, our cultures put a lot of emphasis on eating and drinking as loving and caring. Um, yet as you get closer to the end of life, your desire to eat or drink can really decrease. And it's not been shown that artificially providing nutrition through a feeding tube or a tube in the stomach or hydration through IVs really benefits the patient or prolongs life. In fact, a study that was done many years ago, nurses were asked to comment on their patient's comfort. These were patients at the end of life, and they found that those who didn't have IV hydration or artificial nutrition seemed to have more comfortable deaths. So why? Because oftentimes there's difficulty swallowing. Everything's weak, you know, and the swallowing muscles are muscles. Um, people coughed, they choked had problems with digestion, they vomited, they had diarrhea, they swelled from the IV fluids um, because they didn't have enough protein to keep the fluid in their veins. So I'm not saying you should starve somebody, okay? But let them take the lead. You know, if they say their mouth is dry, give them ice chips or fluids or ice cream, whatever it is, you know, their comfort food. But don't push it on them. Don't think you're doing them a favor by pushing food on them. It's really not going to help 
And that, of course, just exactly what you said, that we we feel like feeding someone is a loving thing to do. Yes. And so, so often, particularly at the end of life or as someone is even moving, not necessarily actively passing, but moving in that direction, mm-hmm. that their interest in food and their body's ability to deal with it is remarkably different. Yes, it is. And, you know, I was talking about my grandmother. I mean, she was the ultimate. And the, the Yiddish word is S, S, eat, eat. Okay. So, right. yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I also love that you are saying, don't, don't make them, don't deny them what they like. Right. My, when my mother-in-law was in, she, she was in a nursing home. Oh goodness, I think maybe five weeks before she passed. I mean, she was, that it just wasn't necessarily until the very end almost. And, um, and I remember that the nursing home told my, my husband and his sisters that, oh, well, you know, they have restricted her pork because of the salt. And, and they kind of had a fit and said, are you kidding? This is her favorite food. Do not put that back on there. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy when we, I, I tell this to the interns and residents in the hospital all the time, people come into the hospital and we put everybody on this heart healthy diet, which is two grams sodium. It is tasteless. Okay. <laughs> people are malnourished when they come in to begin with and they get worse on that diet. We change their blood pressure pills because they're on a two gram sodium diet. So we decrease it. When they go home, they're not going to be on that two gram sodium diet. It's ridiculous. Okay. So we really, I mean, there are some people who need to be on a two gram sodium diet. Not the vast majority. Can, can we just clone you and put you everywhere in the United <laughs> States? Honest to goodness. Oh, I tried to do that in the book. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Okay, so so talking about hospitals and and physicians and phys- and medical intervention, one of the things that so many of us do so regularly is to schedule medical appointments, take our loved ones to medical appointments, often be in the appointment with them, all of that sort of thing. How do we as caregivers best navigate? those medical appointments. How do we honor that patient-physician boundary, but at the same time, also we we have things we need to know and we have things that we can bring to that conversation. Absolutely. How do we do that? Absolutely. Do do that? <laughs> this is what I call uh, triadic conversations. And when I have the students with me, it's new for them because they're used to a doctor-patient dyadic relationship. Okay. This can be triadic. It can be quadratic. Okay. There can be care, care providers, you know, paid providers who are in the room as well. Um, I think the first thing is similar to what we talked about before. You need to have a conversation with your loved one and say, I'm going to be there. Is it okay if I say some things? Okay. Now what I do, you know, you can't, I can't give out information about a patient without the patient's approval. But my presumption is if they loved you in that room, (laughs) then you can be there for whatever we have to say. And what I do 
in order to be respectful of my patients is I say, is it okay with you if I ask your daughter about that? You know, we're talking about your memory. And I say, you know, it's hard to judge your own memory. You know, it's hard to judge your own sleep. You know, is it okay if I ask? And I don't think I've, I mean, maybe once I was told no, but other than that, you know, so I think that's a great way to do it. Um, the other thing is there are topics that they don't want you to raise. Okay. And this is a little more difficult. <laughs> so, you know, what's supposed to happen is that if you raise something and she doesn't want to talk about it, that's the end of the conversation. Or if you catch me outside, okay, that's a little dicey. But what I've ended up doing, and I think it makes the most sense, is if you have something that's of concern to you, leave a message for me, okay? Let me know. I will not respond to you. I, you know, I can't, but now I know and I can bring it up. And where that comes in the most for me is with driving. I live in Manhattan. I assume nobody drives. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people have cars and they're still driving, you know, and I get calls from children saying, I'm not letting my kids in the car with her. You know, what are we going to do? <laughs> so if, you know, I ask if, if they know their parent knows that they're calling me and they're very honest, you know, um, and then we go from there and it just comes up as a part of my regular checklist of things that we need to talk about. Um, the last thing is if you're going to be in the room with them, leave for a while, give them a chance to be with their doctor alone. And I will generally send you out. Okay. Um, during the physical exam or if we're doing a mental status exam, something like that, because there are things that your loved one doesn't want you to know, or is embarrassed for you to know, and they want to talk about it. So I ask them, and sometimes I'm told, no, I, there's nothing I won't say in front of my daughter or my son. And sometimes I'm told, you know, I've been having this problem with leaking or falling or whatever. And they don't want you to know because they're afraid you're going to say, oh, you got to move. You got to have somebody in the house with you. Okay. Sure. So I think it's just really important to give them that chance. I, I love that. I, I love the thoughtfulness and the sensitivity to both people or all people involved with this. Again, it is multi-generational. It is, you know, lots of people are involved when a loved one is getting older, declining or not, yeah. but particularly declining. Um, and I love that you that you honor that the patient, your patient. I used to get so frustrated when doctors, when I would be in the appointment with my mother and the doctor would look at me and ask me the question and I would be like, what she is your patient. What a mess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I will admit that I slipped my mother's doctor a note one time and said, here are some things you need to know about that she is not going to tell you. Yeah. So and thank you for the affirmation. You know, that was okay. that. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, she says that she's doing well with her medications. And the truth is she's not. Exactly. And I'm prescribing these medications. Okay. Exactly. I need to know. <laughs> 
exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, so big, big question. How do you know when it is normal aging versus maybe there are some things going on that really need to be attended to? Okay, so the way I look at this is if it's bothering you, especially if it's interfering with your ability to do what you want to do, it should be discussed with a medical provider. Okay. Uh, some things may not be remediable. Some things may be normal aging, but there's ways to adapt to your new normal and things that can help. Um, I think it's just really upsetting when people are blown off because of their age. Okay. And it's really important that you get a health provider who is an ageist. Okay. And we have a lot of ageist people in this country, not just medical providers. But, you know, I tell this story and look, I have a patient, Ralph, who was still working full time. He was an editor for a magazine. He used to take the subway down and, you know, New York city, we supposedly have elevators and escalators, but they don't work most of the time. And he came and he said, he went to an orthopedist and he said, you know, I've got this pain in my left knee that is keeping me from being able to get to work. And the doctor said, what do you expect? You're 90 years old. (laughs) And his reply, my right knee is also 90 years old and it feels great. You know? Uh, Love it. I mean, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to let your loved ones advocate for you. And this is something I would tell an older person who doesn't want you involved, okay? We have a very broken healthcare system. It is terribly broken. And you really, anybody who is willing to help and advocate for you, you take it, okay? (laughs) Let me tell you, it is tough. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, that that could be a whole nother conversation, couldn't it? Yes, it could. <laughs> it could. And it's because it is just, it's not necessarily getting better. Right. You know? What right. I find fascinating is what is getting better is a realization that in order to be healthy, it takes more than medicine and medical stuff. Okay. The, there's this term that's used now, social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, if you don't have a house, a place, a roof over your head, you're more likely to have bad health, right? If you can't get good food. I mean, all of these things. And we need to take all of that into account, you know. So don't get me started. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That will be our next podcast. Okay. Our next conversation. (laughs) You have been at this for a very long time. You, I mean, you right now are speaking to some of the shifts. But are there some other shifts that you are seeing in medicine and specifically in the whole realm of aging, our understanding of the aging process and all that that surrounds that. Well, I have to say, I never thought I would see Martha Stewart as the cover girl for Sports Illustrated Stones at 81 or 82, okay? Exactly, or anybody at that age. Surprise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And I know her, she supports our, uh, medical practice. So I have to give her a lot of credit. Um, but seriously, you know, the shift in the perception of aging is that many more of us are going to live into old age. And if you're ageist, you're prejudiced against your future self. You know, if you can be sexist and you can be racist, 
not that it's good, but it's unlikely that you will feel that prejudice, okay? Whereas if you're ageist, it's very likely. And what we really don't get is we're going to be in pretty good shape for most of those extra two to four decades that we get. Um, you know, only about 25% of people in this country who are 85 or older are frail or living with dementia. Okay. 70% of people who are over 85 say their health is good or excellent. It's mind-blowing, okay? Well, so, that is also very different from what the research or what I'm reading because it keeps talking about, oh, and, you know, whatever, uh, the, the, the millions and millions of the high percentage who have dementia and are not well. So thank you for that, that refreshing look at this. Yeah, no, I mean, it's real. The thing about the more and more is that, yes, there are going to be more and more older people. So if there are, if 25% of people now are living with dementia, 25% of this larger number will be more people. Sure. No question about that, you know. Um, I think we also need to realize that we acknowledge some of the things that we do to increase our chances that we'll be able to have a good old age. Um, recognizing that the risks for heart disease, which we've done such an amazing job with, okay, I mean, 50-year-old men, when I was growing up, didn't stand a good chance, okay? Right. We've really decreased the deaths from heart, uh, heart disease. These risk factors for the heart are the same as for the brain, for brain disease. Mm -hmm. So if you control your blood pressure, your cholesterol, exercise, and you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, just get out, <laughs> get off the couch, you know? Um, <laughs> Eat fruits and vegetables. Cut down on the red meat. Stop smoking if you still smoke. Avoid air pollution if you can. Get enough sleep. And very importantly, socialize, socialize, socialize. Okay. Be with other people. Um, you'll have a longer life. You'll have less heart disease and you'll have less cognitive impairment. And the other thing that I have to say is we now know the harm of ageism. And we really didn't get into that, but I, if I can, I'd like to just spend a minute on it. Absolutely. Um, you know, our attitudes towards ages, and we're talking multi-generation, um, they start when we're young. It's what we see, it's what we hear. Um, and it's clear we carry those attitudes with us into our own old age. And there's a psychologist at Yale, Becca Levy, who's done wonderful work on this. And it shows that, that how we feel about aging influences, like my grandmother says, it influences how we're going to do. Um, and if we're negative, we undermine how our older, older loved ones um, experience the world. They feel infantilized, uh, like they're being treated as if they were incompetent or invisible. So I think we just really need to have everyone recognize how important it is um, to stand up to ageism, to resist it when you see it happening, to say something, okay? And, you know, we see it on TV. Comedians don't seem to think they can make fun of anybody else these days, but they're constantly making fun of older people and how they walk and, you know, how they look. 
it's it's ridiculous. It doesn't say anything about that person and who they are. Right. Right. So right. You know, there there are so many different parts of of I feel like we have truly just tipped the iceberg, gotten to the tip of the iceberg. There are so many things that I would love to have more conversation with you about. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And this this whole notion of uh, we have more older people. You know, we have watched this cohort go be born and go through life. And it is no surprise. What the surprise is, is that we are so ill prepared as a society for the, the, the numbers of us who are who are reaching that that older adult stage. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a real problem because we need to be looking at what we can do, not just individually. I mean, the book that I wrote is individual. Okay, what can you do? What can your doctor do? But our society has to look at what we can do to make it better. So just an example, New York City has, in many places, has an age-friendly city commission or something like that. They went around and they said to folks, do you use the bus? If you use the bus, do you use the bus shelters? <laughs> said, no, I don't use the bus shelter or I don't use the bus because of the bus shelter. The bus shelters at that time were opaque and they had benches where people laid down and slept. Okay. Going back to the housing question. So after talking to all of these older people, New York changed the bus shelters. They are transparent, so you can see in. And the bench has dividers, okay? So you can't sleep. But not only can't you sleep, if you have weak thighs, which many people do as they get older, it's like a chair, arms of a chair, you can get up, you know? It's these sorts of things. It's trying to make it easier for older people to cross the uh, the street. I don't know if you watch Grace and Frankie. It's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> but there was a great, great episode about how long it takes to cross the street and how long they give you to cross the street. Sure. You know, right. it's a real problem and it's a hazard. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, even I, I live in North Carolina and yeah, I'll cross streets. And for me, it's like, okay, you know, the moment that it becomes a little walker instead of a hand, it's like, get going because you have such a short period of time. Right. And you're right. It, that is just one illustration. And I keep hoping that we baby boomers are the ones that, that goodness, created, maybe not created the field of pediatrician or pediatrics, but certainly the multiple, you look in the yellow pages, if anybody ever does that anymore, you know, and the list of pediatricians, even in small communities. Yes. And I keep wanting so desperately for there to be now an equal number of geriatricians we are not anywhere near there. Not even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not that we're not working on it. <laughs> good, good. We need to be working on that. Yeah. Because I'm getting older, and, <laughs> and I am fortunate that I am with a geriatrician. But, but she is literally, I think, the only one 
who serves patients, board certified geriatrician. And I think she is the only one in like a 50 mile radius or more. It's an impossible job. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Dr. Leipzig, this has been absolutely delightful, but I would love to have you back. Uh, I can come up up with lots of different (laughs) topics for us to discuss. Thank you so very much for your time today, for your insight, but but probably more than anything, your heart and your obvious caring for your patients and what is happening with the older adults. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) To you, our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope this podcast has been helpful to you and that you will share it with others that you believe may benefit. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of our caregiver, caregiver community podcasts on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts. You will also find our podcast on our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we certainly hope that you will take a few minutes and learn more about ACAP, our programs, our educational programs, and our local chapters. And if there are other topics that you would like for us to address, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our age, our background, our education, career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, caring for and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important. So please care well for yourself, for your loved ones, but also remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.